Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Walter Kaufman was a charismatic philosopher, critic, translator, and poet who fled Nazi Germany at the age of 18, emigrating alone to the United States. He described himself as an agnostic and a heretic. His atheism often considered a product of a lifelong critique of religion. He single-handedly rehabilitated Nietzsche's reputation after World War II and was enormously influential in introducing post-war American readers to existentialism. Until now, no book has examined his intellectual legacy. My guest, Stanley Korngold, provides the first in-depth study of Kaufman's thought, covering all his major works. He shows how Kaufman speaks to many issues that concern us today, such as the good of philosophy, the effects of religion, the persistence of tragedy, and the crisis of the humanities in an age of technology. Few scholars in modern times can match Kaufman's range of interests, from philosophy and literature to intellectual history and comparative religion, from psychology and photography to art and architecture. Korngold provides a heartfelt portrait of a man who, to an extraordinary extent, transfigured his personal experience in the pages of his books. I give you Stanley Korngold. Stanley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You have written this tome on Walter Kaufman, who is, the, the title is Philosopher, Humanist, Heretic. And it's interesting, you are not a philosopher. His field was philosophy, and your field is German literature, right? And it, it, so a guy that is this sort of, uh, who made his mark in philosophy might be interested that his this book about him it's it's not quite it's more like it's an intellectual portrait more than a biography but that would be done by someone that wasn't necessarily in his discipline that's really interesting Mm. Uh, Kaufman maintained throughout his writings that literature was more revealing uh, than the philosophical works being composed uh, during his time at Princeton because these works were mostly of the analytical variety, and he thought that they did not attend to the great problems besetting uh, men and women uh, in a deeply existential way. And so he wants to develop philosophical uh, claims that will enhance the lives of his readers, but finds that these Claims are vividly dramatized in great works of literature. That that modesty in, in the analytic tradition that comes right from a sort of philosophy trying to uh, do more by doing less. Like, hey, if, if 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 we don't attend to these bold, big questions about the true, the good, and the beautiful, and more analyze truth claims in in, in sentence form and things like this, that, that hey, we might not have the answers to the meaning a meaningful life but we can justify our existence to the dean right <laughs> there's there's something there's a kind of modesty in that 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 uh there's an intellectual rigor he respects but he, he but i mean it it doesn't wow kaufman right <laughs> that kind of project right. it's what you say is very pertinent um he was very unhappy at the end of his life that his broad sweeping uh tomes his trilogies we're not being reviewed by philosophers, and you really hit the mark. It's because uh, Kaufman posed questions that resisted uh, a dispositive answer. I mean, the title of one of his last works is What is Man? Well, at this point, uh, analytical philosophers in Oxford and Cambridge reach for their sherry and turn away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and yet that is sort of, it's interesting. He was extremely popular with undergraduates as a professor at Princeton, right? And this is this is the stuff that many people go to university for, right? To actually, in addition to maybe becoming employable or something, but also to really deal with the great truths and learn how to think, right? I mean, this is it's, it's interesting because he seems to have the kind of spirit you'd want to have exactly to teach bright undergraduates. Yeah, no, it's very pertinent. He was very, very popular 
Uh, didn't the Cohen brothers, uh, the filmmakers, didn't yes. they, they were they were fans. I mean, they said he was very generous, right? You, you read my mind. I was just going to mention <laughs> Ethan Cohen as uh, one of his enthusiastic uh, followers. Um, I'm going to leap to a parallel for just a moment uh, that might be interesting. Um, I'm going to speak for, for just one second about a parallel between uh, Walter Kaufman and Erich Kahler, uh, an eminent intellectual who lived in exile in Princeton, in exile from Nazi Germany during the years 1938 and on. Uh, what you just said rings a bell. Kahler is also a great humanist, uh, a great liberal humanist who thinks that there is more that binds human beings than separates them, that there is a common human essence that must be nurtured, and that at the moment this essence is disfigured, it tends to vanish under the impact of technological innovation, the social media, the flux of crises, of mini crises, and so on. Why do I mention Caller? Because I was just reading the memoirs of a mathematician who was at the Institute for a year and said he used to see Caller and Kaufman frequent the same cafe, PJ's Pancake House. I've eaten at PJ's Pancake House. And lots of, I hope many of your listeners have had uh, the blueberry buckwheat pancakes. But the big question remained, yes, they frequented the same cafe, but did they sit at the same table <laughs> and talk? Well, the point is that Caller uh, shares certain qualities, very major and vivid qualities with Kaufman, namely, uh, they are sweeping humanists. Caller writes about um, man in history. Right? Man the measure. Uh, and here is Kaufman. What is man? Both are concerned with the essence of human beings. This is not a topic for analytical philosophy. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I just want to add one thing. And Collar, I've just been reading, was also asked to teach undergraduate courses wherever he was. And at Princeton, the New School, and Cornell. Uh, right? Neither of them right, specialized in graduate education, though. Kaufman also did teach his advanced seminars on Hegel and Kant and so on. Kaufman, it's interesting. He he is an emigre from Germany, and he grows up in this household, right, where his he's a Jewish background, but his father became a Protestant. His mother remained a Jew, and Kaufman winds up embracing his Jewish heritage and is going to study for the rabbinate and, you know, comes to America and he's studying and then changes to philosophy. I mean, it's very interesting because he, you know, a different life, he could have been a rabbi and, and, and yet he, he seems to teach with the passion of, uh, of, 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 of religious conviction. <laughs> yeah, that's very well said. Um, he's a bit of a guru, a friend of mine, uh, named David Romit, whose work is known to your readers, I'm sure, made a fine distinction between the sage and the guru. The guru is charismatic, and his teaching is sustained by the power of his personality, meaning to understand, to get what the guru is teaching you, you have to be there, you have to uh, <laughs> feel the burn, you've got to... Uh, linger in his spell. The guru's writings may not convey that impact, may not have that transformative effect that you would experience in his presence. The sage is someone whose writings are good enough. They do the work. I think of Kaufman more as a guru. Uh, his writings are eloquent, but they honestly do tend to be repetitive and a little bit uh, unproven. Uh, the claim, for example, that you must, under all circumstances, change your life and read literature and philosophy with a view to changing your life and be thought of as an empty claim until it's specified just what it is you're supposed to change into, right? Yeah, and it's interesting, right, because he is spends some time 
in in the military in post-war Germany, right? And there he finds Nietzsche, and that changes his life. I mean, that in fact, this this sort of uh, uh, there's this great theological book on the work of Karl Barth. The title is "All Being Is in Becoming." And that's kind of, that sounds like Kaufman, you, that could have been a bumper sticker for him, right? If you're going to be, it's about becoming. And, and he writes this book on Nietzsche that is, that really changes the way in, in the Anglo world, at least on this side of, of, of the, of the ocean, the Atlantic, changed the way Nietzsche is received. This sort of idea that he was some kind of proto-Nazi or fascist, which, which in, in Kaufman's mind, and I, I mean, I think it's, he's right about this. That's nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, that's, that's not the spirit of Nietzsche at all. The will to power is not this kind of proto-fascist thing. Right. Um, your question is very rich and I'm going to take the first point about, uh, Nietzsche's, uh, transformative effect on Kaufman, Kaufman's discovery of Nietzsche, uh, while in Berlin. Guess what? I've been in conversation with, Walter Kaufman's older brother. We talk on the phone for an hour every two weeks. He's 101 years old. Wow. His name is Felix Kaufman. Is he in, where is he, in the United States or in Germany? He lives in Florida. In Florida, okay. In a kind of assisted living facility. He's very eloquent and very charming and very persuasive with his uh, upper class English attuned German American accent. <laughs> Um, that, by the way, or by the by, uh, leads to my tending to believe him when he says, oh, Walter and Nietzsche? I taught Walter everything he needed to know about Nietzsche when we were boys. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't hear Americans say things like that. you know. Uh, Felix said, I have a uh, complete memory of what I read, what I did until very recently i.e. when he turned 100. But he said, um, I used to know the Old Testament by heart. Wow. Uh, I can't tell whether <laughs> uh, that is absolutely true. But I'm sorry, that's just a sidelight on the fact that Walter may have reinvented himself a little when he said that his, implies that his first encounter uh, with Nietzsche was uh, as a, an American soldier uh, during the time of the American occupation of West Berlin. On the other hand, Kaufman does tell us that his parents' library included works of philosophers. He does not mention Nietzsche, but he mentions um, Hegel and Kant uh, very uh, forcefully. Uh, in his book on Hegel, he points out that he was dreaming of Hegel from very early on. So there is this component of uh, what philosophy and philosophical thought um, in his being right from the start. And you see the Hegel, the Hegelian spirit, him with Hegel has this great phrase. I think it's in the, it's in the, the um, phenomenology of, of spirit. He says, the truth is the whole uh, with all the contradictions. I mean, not to, but the contradictions, when you look at all of them, the, di the dialectical tensions, that's where the whole, I mean, Adorno says something, right? I guess jabbing at Hegel uh, that the whole is a myth, but, but, but as critical a thinker as Kaufman is, he does seem to believe that there's a whole and that the truth is in it. And when you see all the Sturm and Drang and the, and, and the tensions and the contradictions that somehow you're seeing the truth that, that this great dialectic is, is how things emerge. Um, that's a very provocative uh, thought. I'd like to address it. I'd like to go back one step and respond to something you said just before about his becoming a rabbi. Um, he became a rabbi uh, in, in waiting under some duress since. As a Jew in Germany in the late 1930s, he was prevented uh, from entering a university. He was not permitted to study at a university. And the only higher institute Institute of Higher Learning he could study in was the Institute for Jewish, uh, I'm translating, I'm sorry, Institute for the Science of Judaism. There, the only professional um, opportunity, so to speak, was to become a rabbi. So he studied very hard. 
and it contributed to uh, that his vast learning and his power. Uh, sorry to translate. So, right from the start, his Aramaic and Hebrew, and throw in Greek and Latin from the gymnasium where he had studied before entering this institute. Um, if you consider that some of uh, languages of ancient languages he knew, uh, one has even more respect uh, for his his knowledge and his scholarly prowess. Your last question about the hall uh, allows me to point up something I thought I discovered in his writing throughout. It's the pattern of his thinking tends to be a vigorous yes or no to some claim you find in in works of philosophy or literature, and then to summon up contrary evidence to that claim, a, a no to a yes, a yes to a no, but then conclude with, what can we call it, a dialectically modified first claim, that yes or no. So his thinking is marked by what a Belgian phenomenologist de Valence called his probité, his probity, we'd say, uh, his honesty. He invites contradictions. I don't know how very consciously he does it, but a close reading of his work shows that sooner or later, that major yes to Hegel or that major no to Kant is going to be modified by uh, the statement in the latter case, Kant is the greatest German philosopher. And in the case of Hegel, uh, Hegel's argument that uh, what he is is rational, right, uh, needs to be severely modified. Um, that is to say, Hegel can find elements and moments in the flow of history that appear rational, but that is not to say that the whole is in any sense rational. I, I'm curious, you have uh, a an entire section, the conclusion of the book about Kaufman's major work on, on Nietzsche and all of the criticism and, and it got fanfare and criticism. I mean, what, what was, could you say a little bit about, about Kaufman's place in Nietzsche interpretation in, in, in American intellectual life? Um, its main contribution is to have made Nietzsche an object of serious study and to excite a provocative and creative criticism of his own work, a flood of critique that is almost never ended. It's beginning to drain away a bit now. But after all, we are how many years since the publication of the work? Um, at least in the 50s, right? Yes, yeah. have more than a half century. But until this time, uh, you're able to find Walter Kaufman's name in the index of every single book about Nietzsche, just under the word Kant, and often with many more pages attached to his name <laughs> than Immanuel Kant. Um, the big complaint, of course, is that he left out all the vicious parts. Yeah, but <laughs> you can't write about Nietzsche or indeed every, anyone and say and comment about every single thing that person wrote and then come up with a unifying uh, thesis, a thesis that will help to give you a perspective on the writer. So it comes as to, to me as no surprise that uh, he did not comb the, the Nachlass, the remaining uh, unpublished notes of Nietzsche, looking for horrible propositions, such as something like, if 20 million Europeans must be uh, annihilated to prepare the emergence of a fully developed human being, the so-called Übermensch, so let be, let be. Um, yeah, but Nietzsche didn't, <laughs> don't want to defend him in these moments, didn't publish these things. Uh, we, we do have wild thoughts, and in Nietzsche's case, Nietzsche scribbled down his wild thoughts, and that doesn't mean we're rushing off to publish them as our last word. I mean, that particular proposition I cite is highly rhetorical, right? And Nietzsche, who is the 
personally the gentlest of men. <laughs> Did, didn't he, when he died, didn't he, I mean, I, he's in Northern Italy or something, and, and there was so a farmer whipping his horse or something, and he jumped in front of the, the whip. And I, I heard people called Nietzsche in this town, El Sunto, the saint. I mean, he was, he was this gentle Extremely gentle, um, but a, a demon of thought and a, and a writer of very beautiful prose and a mine of rich riches. My argument in the book was uh, Kaufman's attempt to bring Nietzsche into a German tradition of thought, uh, which is said now no longer to be pertinent, and I'm not sure about that. A German uh, lineage of thinking about personal self-development, about personal fulfillment um, under the the Bildung ideal. Bildung meaning a somewhat untranslatable word, uh, meaning uh, to turn yourself into an ideal self. Uh, in the word uh, for Bildung, or sometimes just called education and development, is the build, the image, the higher image of yourself. And this thinking about the urgency of self-development, of self-improvement, of course, that's not the best phrase. You have a phrase, you have a, 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 a paraphrase of Nietzsche in, in, in your book that Kaufman makes. That's one of my favorite Nietzsche quotes is something like, the most important thing anybody can develop in the, any philosopher is a sense of style. And that, I mean, it, it, this idea that, that, you, it's almost like you're a project worth working on. So throw yourself into this project that is you with all the contradictions and the, and the, and, and resistances and blocks, blockages and inspiration. And that being fully invested in that project, that's what will to power is. It's not this needing to dominate or subjugate. It's, it's actually this grappling with what it means to be you. No, that's really very well said. Uh, it brings to mind a remark of Kafka's, you are the task, and something like no helper far and wide. You are the task. You just hold that task, the project. No, that's right. Um, Nietzsche says, become what you are deeply. Um, mine your uh, repressed power. This is a gist of psychoanalysis, too. Just love your deep self. Love your deepest desire. This is Lacan. Find it, find it, love it, and enact it. And yeah, um, the word will to power is a paraphrase of um, this effort to mine your elements of your personality that you will presuppose as being stronger and worthier than the elements with which you construct yourself at the moment right? or the faculties you employ. The assumption is there's more in you. There's a depth of you that has been especially curtailed under the forces of repression in your society. In uh, Nietzsche's world, that was the church and the military. I don't know how uh, powerful those repressive agencies are in our culture at the moment, but the repression uh, is political in for many, many, many people. Um, is fear of being crushed by unlicensed political authority. In any case, uh, what you what you say is the, is the gist of Nietzsche, um, and that will to self mastery is not pleasant because it means killing off, doesn't it? Uh, so it's pieces of your personality through which you've lived up until now. Yeah, I think of the words of Jesus here. You, if, you, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. And in some sense, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a parallel, there's some kind of resonance there that, that this killing, you know, this, this life that you've been given by institutions and by the persons that, you know, transact in respectability, you, you, you've got to let that, you, you've got to be open to killing that self if, if there's anything going to rise, if the phoenix will rise from the ashes. You know, a lot of the criticism of Kaufman uh, was not attentive to Kaufman's account of Nietzsche. Namely, the criticism was that uh, they make, uh, I'm sorry, Kaufman makes Nietzsche's philosophy a, a pleasure, right? From now on, 
all you need to be concerned with is uh, enriching yourself by well, by reading books and thinking about them and going for long walks by yourself and turning over in your mind the things you've just read. Um, it misses entirely what you've just spoken about, Scott, namely uh, the killing off of, of habits that Nietzsche would say are not your own, have never been your own. It's not a it's this this type of self transformation uh, involves, as you know, we've said this, uh, the pain of casting off this older self. Um, Kaufman depends not so much on that sentence by Jesus as a line from a poem of Rilke's, confronted by an archaic torso of Apollo. He, the poet, the narrator, uh, reads the argument of the torso, so to speak, the mute argument. And the argument is, you must change your life. The suggestion is, change your life into something as beautiful as this torso, or what the torso implies. Um, That is what drives Kaufman again and again to insist on that urgency that you change. Um, It almost sounds like there's a blending here, the psychological and the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. There's this, you know, that, that, as you mine deeper and 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 are on this journey, that, that, that there's a beauty to it. That that a beauty though that comes out of conflict and struggle and and that and all all the all the rest. When you suddenly discover you're doing something you didn't dare to do before, and uh, and it's for the good. It looks like it's for the good. In the '60s, when Kaufman's book on existentialism, his anthology of existentialist writings was in every knapsack. Uh, the notion of change was rather uh, commodified, wasn't it? It became one sort of change, which is uh, grow a beard, and if you're a woman, don't wear a brassiere. And um, there's, there's lots of conformity among the anti-conformists. <laughs> good. Yeah, well said. So again, though, this is the tricky point in Kaufman's Nietzsche. It's true that Nietzsche speaks about self-styling, but remember, he's got a whole armory of of weapons, of pens, so to speak, with which to do the styling. Think of this word stylus. Uh, It's the instrument that incises uh, words and lines in a clay tablet. Well, there's a lot of incising being done by Nietzsche on himself on the strength of his vast learning and his uh, of his super intelligence. And what he has in mind, though it's not so very explicit, is not, you know, becoming buff. It doesn't mean going to the gymnasium uh, uh, and enlarging your biceps necessarily. It's not, it's rarely physical. Uh, but it's rather a styling of your thought, of how you think and what you, how you say what you think as well. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower. Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, 
Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsmith, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenegg. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. And you also mentioned in the book that, that Kaufman's take on, on Nietzsche's writing style, the aphorism is different than, than usual at his time, that people see these aphorisms as, as just mischief or confusing, but he sees in the style, actually there's an organic, there's some organic threads you can see through the, like he, he, he takes this Nietzsche's writing style differently than most of his peers at the time. That's his project to produce a perspective which will take in uh, the most and the best of Nietzsche, obviously leaving things out, can't be done otherwise. His new perspective is Nietzsche is essentially a philosopher of self-making and his work, uh, Kaufman's work, is reasonably systematic. Remember, he stresses sort of five elements to Nietzsche's philosophy, several of which uh, we, we know. He will speak about for ex- the will to power and uh, stress what you, Scott, have stressed. That this is the will to power over the refractory elements of oneself, foremost. It is not about subjecting uh, other people to uh, your will. Um, not that that vanishes from life, but uh, it's, not, it's not crucial. See, here's a bit of repression. Emerging through the telephone, telephone <laughs> call. Don't want it. Um, what I wanted to point out were some of the uh, crucial elements of its pattern or structure that he found in Nietzsche. So, and the way elements hold together. So, for example, uh, there is Nietzsche's uh, frightening thought, he's, as Nietzsche puts it, of the eternal recurrence of the same, which is to say, imagine that. And <laughs> that you will live your life again and again and again and again. And indeed, that might be the case. And so, what about that? Well, you're going to live that life again and again. Be prepared to affirm it. Be prepared to <laughs> have it assume a form which you will be pleased to contemplate again and again and again. So, self-styling and self-making fit, right? Um, the notion of the eternal recurrence in a coherent way. You're, you're, you, you also, uh, you mentioned in the book that if you go on Amazon and look at his book, The Faith of a Heretic, I mean, this is a book written in the late fifties or something, right? Or early six. This is, this book is so wildly popular. I mean, it's hard to get a copy of it. I mean, you, I mean, this is, and this is his, his, his own description of kind of his own criticism of and yet interaction with religion and and it's interesting because what i what i find interesting about the 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 picture you paint of Kaufman the today's religious critics say the new atheists the the, the people like hitchens or, or the late hitchens or dawkins these people don't seem to understand how religion functions or works or the beauty of it so their their criticisms are, are ring a little shallow. I mean, Kaufman's criticisms of religion seem so deep, and, and they also come from this admiration of the great truths in religious texts. You know, someone who doesn't like theology or traditional moralizing, and yet finds Kaufman seems to find in religious texts and traditions at the same time repositories of human greatness and interesting things and things worth wrestling with. I mean, he's, he's got a fascinating relationship to religion and religious devotion. No, absolutely. Um, we can think about his uh, feelings, his views on religion generally under the head of aspiration. Um, he has a wonderful phrase. He speaks about uh, an element, a dimension of human life, which she calls its ontological deficits, meaning um, if we look at ourselves, our first thought might very well be how ragged is our personality in our life, how incomplete it is, how much it lacks 
at the full form. It would be wonderful if we could perceive this coherence and live coherently in the light of that pattern. But rather we experience a sense of something missing. On the other hand, this deficit leads to the desire for wholeness, for a fuller form. And then he thinks that religion, put this mildly, it's a vehicle for such aspiration, since it acquaints us with divinity to whom we assign the properties of fullness, of fullness and complete. So, put it bluntly, says Kaufman, we aspire to be gods. Uh, and religion, uh, religious books, uh, should give us a pattern uh, for that aspiration. Is there kind of a Feuerbachian idea here? I mean, Feuerbach, even though you know he's an atheist, thinks that theology is important to study because it tells us what our, our uh, the horizon of our values are. We, is, it, we project these deep ideals that we have onto God, right? And so, in, in, in studying religion, we are learning more about ourselves for, in that in that set sense, right? He also loves, as you suggest, the books of religion, and he's really appalled that uh, we don't know this by and large, forgive me for positing this deficit in, quote, our learning, the deficit in my own, we don't know the religious scripture, the scriptures of the great religions well at all. And so his suggestion is uh, don't assume a stance toward religion until you know the the, the books, the vehicle of a thought that, of religions, the kernel. And so there is his vast trilogy at the end of his life um, in which he surveys uh, the places of religion. It seems that he's mostly visits these places where religions were founded in Jerusalem. For one thing, uh, on foot, on foot, he's seen the places, he's seen the relics, he's taken them to heart. He's moved by this invention of men, um, but it's an extraordinary invention, his mind, and you can't live without it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, that, I find that incredibly interesting. And, and you know, and in the, these books at the end of his life he's writing, are not published by university presses, right? They're published like the Reader's Digest, trade press and stuff. So, I mean, this is, uh, and it seems to, I mean, people, you can, you can find people in the, in his, in the guild will say he wasn't even a philosopher, right? He's more like a man of letters or something. And, and this, it seems to, you know, he, this is a tough thing to, to be told by your peers that you're not really one of their guild. And, and yet he seems to further this, notion by going out and publishing even these more eclectic works under these non-academic presses to just get thought out there. And that's very true. Um, he becomes more and more defiant um, and he wants to make a splash as well. And he wants to write and publish continually. And people who write a bunch of books uh, never want to stop writing them. Uh, you want to be out there what what can I say? It's a, a crucial discipline. It might be something of an obsession, but it becomes the case. Uh, once you start down that path, it's, you, you can't stop. It becomes, quote, the meaning of life. What will you do if you did not have a, a book in mind to write and to publish? That's the thought. And is so this, he be- is this, do you think, where he comes up with this, t- this term, humbition? Yeah. He wants that he... Because... He, it seems like he is an ambitious guy, and yet he knows that we, the human spirit does well when we're humble. And this whole, I mean, and it's a word that, like, I'm sure because it sounds like humbug doesn't catch. But but there is something to this like notion of a bold humility or humble boldness, right? With that dialectically, you need both of these things, right? You need some ambition if you're going to put your thought out there to have it engaged, and yet you, you want to be aware of your own blind spots and thing. And that, that those are hard things to keep in tension, right? Toward the end, there's a bit more ambition than there is humility <laughs> <laughs> in Kaufman's case. And as you suggest, he suffered by neglect. He wanted to be acknowledged by other philosophers as an important thinker. But material sign of that falling away of an academic audience, of course, is in the 
choice of publisher or the necessity of publishing uh, elsewhere since these are books at the end of his life, the What is Man anthology and so on, that no academic press would pick up. They couldn't get up readers in who were professors of philosophy to say, uh, this is what we want to see out there. It's distracting. It distracts from what we do, which is we want to solve problems that are soluble and not expatiate right, about uh, the grand abstractions. And, and this is his, you write in the book about his, his desire to see so, some reconciliation between this ex- existential analytic spirit that he doesn't want to dismiss analytic rigor and the passion for clarity and argument, but he thinks that if that comes at the expense of focusing on smaller and smaller, more parochial questions, then what's the point, right? I mean, because we're human beings. I mean, the, these ultimate existential questions are what it means to, to, to live a, a, an examined life. I mean, if, if you're dodging these, it's, it seems philosophy is dodging the point for him. He also uh, rather wittily pays uh, attention to those spaces in which analytical philosophy is done, those spaces, those old college rooms in Oxford and Cambridge, right, uh, with their character of being insulated right, from uh, the hard knocks of reality. Uh, the examples of many of the analytical writings tend to be about things like carpets and gooseberries. And, yes, Sherry, I suppose. Uh, Analytical philosophers are not much interested in, he thinks, in music, and that matters to him enormously, or in the visual arts, especially in his life. As you know, he was a dedicated photographer and a visitor uh, of ruins and museums again and again and again. So what you call the, the parochial spirit of analytical philosophy, according to him, is refers quite literally to the parochial environment of Oxford and Cambridge. I'm curious, this is a project that obviously took some time out of your life. This book is is uh, over 500 pages long. So, so, yeah, right. So, counting all the footage. I mean, this is a massive book, you know. I'm, I'm interested, what made you want to do this project? And, and, and Kaufman was so about a life where one was changed. Did it change you at all, this project? Hmm. You'd have to ask my wife. (laughs) (laughs) She's had to suffer through it, I guess. Yeah, but, you know, um, Kaufman is a pleasure to read. He writes extremely well. Uh, What he wants to say, he says uh, so very clearly, uh, and he's often witty. And above all, he invites you to quarrel with him. So he's truly he's stimulating. Um, and this is not characteristic of a lot of academic writing, Sam. You, you just, I mean, most academic writing in philosophy, is, you don't often find people saying, well, this philosopher is fun to read. <laughs> like right. That's generally not, uh, you don't hear that very often. Uh, he's a vivid writer. So my idea was to follow him along, to read through his works. I didn't know he'd published such a lot. Not many people know about these late trilogies, these thousand-page works of his. And I'd signed on to have a look at Kaufman's philosophical writings, and I was rather surprised, but then uh, determined to to cover to cover the lot. Did you uh, know him when he was at Princeton? I knew him a little. Not much. I think I told you in, in the book that I came from a different school of thought about Nietzsche and about literature and philosophy. Uh, in, generally, I was a student of Paul de Man. I was a deconstructionist. I was uh, disinclined to draw substantive claims from works, but rather to show all the ways in which they uh, tended to criticize their own claim through features of their rhetoric and so on. And th- this uh, was a, a, a reading of, of Nietzsche, for instance, this deconstructionist reading that was coming 
to the United States from Europe later. He said that he, that he was bothered by this. He thought, especially if people like Nietzsche, he, he thought these readings were um, obfuscating kind of a picture of Nietzsche that he thought was there. No, he, he thought that they were playing word games and, and, and getting nowhere. And above all, that they were attending to, quote, snippets, piece, little pieces of Nietzsche. Uh, and that they were... N- and a lot of writers on Nietzsche in this field had read very little of the whole right, of the whole of Nietzsche. Did not really know Nietzsche well, but would pounce on particular propositions. I wrote a, an essay on Nietzsche uh, in the eighties and dedicated it to Walter Kaufman, whom I did not know very well at Princeton. Uh, he died in nineteen eighty. A young age of fifty-nine, right? Sorry, he, was, he died. At, Kaufman died at a very young age. At a very young age, at fifty-nine. Yes, and I knew that even the deconstructive writers were mostly dependent on his translations. It made it possible for this army of adversaries, right, to come alive. Uh, they were feeding on his work. At the same time, they were, in principle, uh, dismissing it. Um, I dedicated the piece to the memory of Walter Kaufman. Um, it was chiefly on those grounds that somehow I felt that his contribution, even to the deconstructive army, right, was underrated because it was his translations that were being used. Yeah, this this experience seemingly of, of being underrated uh, is something that it seems like Kaufman had to live with a lot. And, and I mean, that's going to be tough for a guy with this prolific body of work who charismatic spirit, a, 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 a giant of a mind. And yet to be underrated must have been a, a tough thing for him. Right. Especially that he was a wunderkind. He was a genius. Hmm? Uh, if you stop and think, he was uh, barely 30 years old when he did the Nietzsche book. And a few years later, uh, wrote, as I uh, say in my book, uh, literally three or, three or four uh, extraordinary books in the space of three years, in a time when he was also translating and teaching, right? The Faith of a Heretic, The Critique of Religion and Philosophy, An Anthology of Religious Writings. Uh, tremendous. Were his colleagues work. jealous of his success here, you think, at all? Yeah, the others were concerned. Well, remember that, <laughs> remember or know for the first time that the literature department at, in Princeton at that time was dominated, the literature of the field was dominated by the English department, um, which was uh, heavily involved in a, a reading of English literature through a Christian focus, especially medieval lit- English literature and Shakespeare, right? And, Spencer and and the metaphysical poets and so on. Um, it was Christian and Kaufman uh, was not over careful in criticizing uh, <laughs> the Christian religion for its shortcoming, especially the history of the churches, right, with its persecution of the Jews, with its so-called crusades and the rest. Um, he was not. Kaufman is not impressed by Jesus as a moral philosopher. And he argues again and again. And what about hellfire for all those who, do, who don't convert? And what about the alleged universality of the Christian vision? It's not universal at all. It's for those who uh, are willing to be baptized and declare that they believe. And he can be a bit cynical and say those vast conversions, Christianity, were more easily accomplished than conversions to Judaism, uh, which was something of interest to uh, the Romans and to Roman civilization at one time. To become a Jew meant to uh, learn the Torah and practice the most difficult, scrupulous habits of eating and praying and the rest. And Kaufman said, I can't say rightly or wrongly, that for the rest, uh, you could avoid circumcision, undergo an agreeable baptism, and declare, I believe, and you are Christian. 
So this did not go over well with uh, people in the English department and probably the administration <laughs> and even certain philosophers uh, in the philosophy department. I don't want to name names, but a very powerful Greek scholar of ancient Greek literature there was not at all impressed by Kaufman's translations of Goethe. What, uh, what, had, what did that have to do with philosophy? He thought the department was partly analytical and partly uh, devoted to uh, Greek, the Greek, the ancient Greek philosophers. But in a recent conversation with some survivors of this time, they said, oh, when we were younger people, uh, we voted strongly to keep Kaufman with us because he was being lured away by offers from other universities. No, no, because we thought there ought to be someone here who isn't either a Platonist or an analytical philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've written a great book and about about Kaufman, and, and certainly um, he he is not underrated in, in in your eyes. I mean, you you pick you paint a great portrait of his work, and and critical, and yet you know. Uh, admirable all at the same time and thank you for writing this book and thank you for spending some time talking to me about it oh scott it's been entirely my pleasure I've, your questions have uh, really made made me think and i'm very grateful for the stimulation thank you so much thanks for listening to give and take if you like what you heard please do a couple things for me they are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Stanley Korngold for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Walter Kaufman, Philosopher, Humanist, Heretic. It's a great read and you won't regret it. Thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.